morning, I'd like us to examine the Scriptures in a couple of different uh, segments this morning under the idea of Jesus' urgency, His strong desire toward the cross and the resurrection. We began this idea last Lord's Day, and I'm going to finish it up this morning, beginning where we were last week for a few moments in Luke chapter 4. After Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, he attended a synagogue service in his hometown. And as part of the service, Jesus was one of the ones chosen to read Scripture that day. And on this occasion, he announced his mission program by unrolling the scroll to Isaiah 62 and reading, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus wasn't talking merely about healing physical infirmities and circumstances. He was speaking of spiritual healing. In fact, his miracles were uh, an evidence and a recognition of what he was doing in a larger way to heal people. And the time of the Lord's favor, which was the time when all would embrace him as Savior, this is what he came to do. He came to enrich those who were spiritually poor and to release those who were morally bound and to give sight to the spiritually blind, and to heal those who are emotionally bankrupt. And I try to remember every time I open the Word of God and share it with a congregation and have the the privilege of doing that, that I am preaching to people, perhaps some of whom are spiritually poor and morally bound and perhaps spiritually blind and emotionally bankrupt. We can all look back on our journey and see where we have been there, and maybe we're going through that kind of thing right now. This is what Jesus has come to address, and he's urgent about it. And when he's healing people and casting out demons and and raising the dead, those are all illustrations of this greater spiritual reality that he came to save us from our universal spiritual disease, which is our sin, which would not allow us to enter into the presence of God. We have these beautiful Easter lilies up here. It's traditional to have lilies at Easter time in bloom. But the reason that they are alive and blooming this morning and flourishing is that their roots are going down into nourishing soil. They're not just in a vase. They're in a pot with dirt. They're connected to a source of life. But when we come into the world, we're not like these lilies nourished by the soil. Instead, we're like cut flowers in a vase. We may look lovely for a while, but we soon wither and blacken because we have no source of life in us. Jesus came to rescue us from this condition. He came to nourish us with life once again by reconciling us to the Father, our Creator, in whom is eternal life. He came to bring us into a loving fellowship with Him so that we may find the source of eternal life. But His mission to bring us back into union with God depended upon a certain chain of events that even Jesus' closest earthly companions, his disciples, never saw coming. 
In order for Jesus to bring us into the very presence of God the Father, he would have to rid us of the sin that keeps us from our holy God. And you cannot simply wipe sin away. Sin has to be paid for through a blood sacrifice. Jesus came to be that sacrifice, to die in our place so that he could apply his death to us and save us from sin when we place our faith in him. And truly to release us from bondage and open our blind eyes. So as we saw last week, Jesus begins to tell his bewildered disciples about this event of his cross and the resurrection, how he has to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and then be raised again the third day. And Jesus was committed to this mission. We read last week in Luke 9.51, where it says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up to the Father, that is through his death and resurrection, Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, the place of his execution. He's up in Galilee, And in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all of his ministry takes place up in Galilee. But then there comes a time in each of those three gospels where he sets his face toward Jerusalem. And after that, in all of the chapters leading up to his entrance into Jerusalem and his Passion Week, he is headed that direction. I told you last week that we're sort of following after Jesus in this sermon following him on his journey to Jerusalem to see what drove him, what made him so urgently seek the cross and the resurrection. And also to see what example that leaves for us who are called to follow after Jesus. Our main text is Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. And here we find some Pharisees who unwittingly try to divert Jesus from his mission. They come to Jesus with news in this text. Herod wants to kill you. We looked at Herod a little bit last week. Herod was Herod Antipas. Antip, uh, Herod Antipas, that's how you say it. Uh, the, the Herod who ruled over the region of Galilee where Jesus had grown up in the city of Nazareth. The reason where Jesus had caught, taught and preached and had done so many miracles. Herod had executed John the Baptist and people were telling Herod that this Jesus he kept hearing about was actually John the Baptist come from the dead. So he was really scared. And perhaps he was so frightened, he wanted to do away with Jesus also. And so he's, he's looking to kill him. And if somebody were to come and say, somebody's looking for you to kill you, at least if it were me, I'd try to try to get out of the area as quick as I could. But Jesus was not deterred. That's why he says in verse 32, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. In other words, Jesus was not going to be put off from his mission. He will continue his mission today and tomorrow and on the third day, he, he will finish the course. It was not Herod the fox who would finish it. Jesus himself would finish it. And then he says in verse 33, nevertheless, because in fact, in this text, Jesus is already journeying to Jerusalem. He he literally is already about to go out of the area anyway. Nevertheless, he says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then he talks about the prophets that have been killed in Jerusalem in the past, unfortunately. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And the cross is looming 
as he makes this journey. And chapter after chapter in Luke, we see this journey until he enters Jerusalem in chapter 19. Do you understand maybe from an experience that you might have had this sense of dread that you get when something bad is looming that will be painful or even potentially fatal or maybe it's just some unknown? Maybe it's a difficult conversation you have to have with someone or maybe it could be a court date, maybe a very involved surgery. I don't know but you're sort of preoccupied with the thought of this inevitable event. And and just having gone through that a little bit in, in a little small way, it makes me wonder what it must be like to await your impending execution or martyrdom. We think about Jesus nearing Jerusalem. We think about him opening his eyes with each morning light to realize that he was one day closer to that day when they would strip him and mock him and lacerate his back with the searing pain of the Roman whip and compel him to carry his cross to Golgotha. And they would nail his hands and feet to the wood in twisted form. In unbearable pain, he would struggle for hours to breathe there, helpless. And worst of all, what we cannot even comprehend, upon the sinless son would be laid the sins of humanity. And yet, Jesus says, I must go on to Jerusalem. I want you to look closely at that little word, I must go on my way to Jerusalem. This word must represents a Greek verb, which means to bind or tie or make fast. It means it is absolutely necessary. Jesus says, it is absolutely necessary that I go to Jerusalem to face a horrible, unspeakable execution. And I am bound to this. I am tied fast to this event. Why? Why would anyone, especially the Son of God, submit himself to this ordeal? Why was he so urgent despite what was waiting for him? Last week, I said that there were several reasons his mission was so urgent. And these, these, these uh, reasons instruct us. They, they burden us. And they should create in us an urgency if we desire to come after him and imitate his example as his disciples. And I think we can see these reasons in our text in Luke 13, 31 through 35, but we also see them depicted in the ministry of Jesus itself. Last week, we said that his first reason for his urgency is his compassion for people. We were his mission to rescue us and to glorify the Father. We are his mission, lost sinners in need of salvation, and no one was going to deter him from that. He came both to seek and to save those who were lost. And we are seeking uh, we, we, we see this seeking and saving compassion for people in Luke's gospel while he's on his journey. We didn't take a time last week to rehearse all the events in Jesus' journey, and we can't do it this morning either. But while Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, this is when he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan who sacrificially saves the life of the man who would have been counted as his enemy. It is on his journey to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel uh, that we see Jesus teaching the multitudes about God's compassionate care for them. 
On this journey to the cross, he heals a poor woman who had been bound with a severe scoliosis for 18 years. She was doubled over, Luke's gospel says. And he laments over Jerusalem, wishing to gather his people in his arm like a hen gathers her chicks. On this journey, he eats with tax collectors and sinners and expresses his love for them as a shepherd would for a lost sheep. On this journey, he tells the parable of the prodigal son. The only time we see this this parable in the Gospels is on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. The parable of the prodigal son who is embraced by the Father. He cleanses the ten leopards, only one of whom comes back and thanks him. He calls the little children to come to him. All of this is in the context of this impending doom on him, the cross. He purposely seeks out Zacchaeus right before his entrance to Jerusalem and enters the house of Zacchaeus to share a meal with him. Zacchaeus was a rat, really. He was this weasley little tax collector, filthy rich because he had defrauded people out of so much money. And when Jesus entered his house, everybody grumbled, what's he going in there for? They hated Zacchaeus. But Jesus loved him. And he went into his house and Zacchaeus placed his faith in Christ and it transformed him from a conniving thief into a benevolent giver. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I hope you are extremely thankful this morning that the Lord didn't stop at seeking and saving those that we look out at and think are savable. Because we are all in the same boat when it comes to that idea. None of us are savable. It's only through Jesus Christ who seeks and saves those who are lost. You see, all along the way, Jesus is showing this compassion for people and he's leaving us an example, moving toward his ultimate act of compassion and giving his life for us, preparing to die so that we might live. When we ask the question, why would Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem? Why would he be in earnest to die? One of the answers that presents itself immediately is that Jesus loved us and desired to provide a way for our salvation. And if you're a believer in Christ this morning, nothing will ever separate you from that love. Love drove him to complete that mission. And love should drive us now as his children to see the needs of people and desire them to know the Savior. But there's another reason that Jesus was so urgent about the cross and his resurrection. I'm going to present this reason before we move on with some of our music, and then I'll come back to present a third one in just a little bit. I want to spend a few more moments then as, as we look at this text. Jesus' urgency in Luke's gospel is motivated not only by his compassion for people, but is motivated by his desire to obey the will of the Father. He is resolute on his journey to the cross because it was what God the Father wanted. In fact, Jesus was so bound to the will of the Father that we as believers, we cannot say that we desire to follow Jesus at all unless we are saying with absolute sincerity, God, what would you have me to do? That's what Jesus always said. 
when Jesus says, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course, no one will hurry me, no one will threaten me. It is in part because this is what God the Father has given him to do. We see that so many times in John's gospel where several times Jesus insists that he came to do the will of the Father, that he doesn't say anything, that he doesn't do anything except in the Father's will. We also see this in Luke. For example, in Luke 10, Jesus sends 72 disciples ahead of him to preach in the villages before he gets there on his way to Jerusalem. And these 72 return rejoicing at the amazing ministry that they had had. And Jesus prays to the Father, thanking him that he has used these men and opened their understanding because it was the Father's gracious will. Jesus withstood the devil's temptation in Luke 4 essentially by affirming his commitment to do the will of the Father. That's why he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Do you realize this morning that God has a will for us as his people, as followers of Jesus Christ? Do we consider daily that we have to be about the business of obeying God? Of course, God's will for your life is first that you receive his son, that you place your faith in him alone for salvation. But after that, our life pattern ought to be obedience to the Father's will, even as Jesus was obedient to the Father's will. I don't think there's any better text, especially in Luke's gospel, to see Jesus' absolute desire to do God's will than the familiar passage in Luke 22 when Jesus is about to be arrested and taken to trial. Luke says he withdrew from them about a stone's throw from from, from his disciples, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, this cup of suffering for sin, the cup of torment and the horrors of the cross. Nevertheless, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. I want you to notice the if. If you are willing, Jesus lived his life by that if. If you are willing, the if was part of his humiliation when he entered a body like ours, when he became genuine flesh and blood like we are so that he could represent our race to the, to the God who needed to forgive us. Jesus came to earth to live according to the if. If it be the Father's will, then I will do it. And Jesus makes this obedient explicit in the following verse when he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And I wonder if that's our testimony as we follow Jesus to Jerusalem. Do we say with such conviction, if this is God's will, then there's no other will for me. I will do it. Sometimes we think it's hard to do what God wants all the time. There are things I want to do first. And always we're asking for God's will, but we we seem like it seems like other things get in the way. And sometimes we ask perhaps for his will insincerely. I asked you a moment ago to remember a situation in your life where you might have been facing something difficult or looming ahead of you and what that must feel like. 
Well, have you ever marched bravely onward to meet some challenge thinking, okay, this is the day. I'm going to face it today. I'm going to take care of this thing today. And at the last minute, you're like, well, you know, maybe I'll do that tomorrow. That's how our wills often work. No one understands that better than Jesus. In the garden, he wrestled with the will of the Father, so much so that you notice the text says the Father sent an angel from heaven, verse 43, to strengthen him. But notice the effect of the strengthening angel is not to alleviate Jesus' will to follow the Father, but to alleviate his anguish to strengthen him to pray with greater fervency. Verse 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The word agony is an athletic term in ancient Greek. It's in the the arena of wrestling, even. Jesus is wrestling with the will of the Father. He's sweating so profusely, so much so that Luke says his his sweat was like drops of blood. And yet, despite the horrifying event that was about to swallow him up, Jesus surrendered his will to the will of the Father. And in the Father's will, Jesus went humbly to the cross to suffer and die for our sins. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadow o'er me. Let's join our voices together. Hallelujah. Christ arose. Why was Jesus so urgent about the cross and his resurrection? Even as it brought him nearer to suffering and shame? And how do these reasons instruct us? We've seen that, first of all, Jesus is urgency was motivated by his compassion for people. It was motivated by his desire to obey the will of the Father. I want to talk about one other one before we continue with our worship this morning and have the privilege of gathering around the Lord's table. And that is that Jesus's urgency was motivated by his commitment to fulfill the scriptures. As Jesus' disciples, we should also desire to fulfill the Scriptures in the sense that what the Bible tells us to do, we want to obey that. We want to be used by God to bring to pass what God has said will happen in the earth, such as the gospel to the ends of the world. But Jesus fulfills the Scriptures not only by His obedience to the Scriptures, but by being the very person that the Bible is about. When Jesus says, once again in Luke 13, 32, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. That course was set for Jesus, not only in the will of the Father, but in accordance with the authoritative will of God. In Luke chapter 18, verses 31 and following, we we find the third and final time that Jesus makes a formal announcement to the disciples about what is about to happen to him in Jerusalem. His first announcement, we, we looked at last week, it happened prior to his journey to Jerusalem, and he makes a second announcement right before he begins the journey, and this announcement takes place toward the end of the journey. 
It says, in taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. They're almost to the end. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. We find this prophetic promise of the coming of salvation through the Messiah in various places of the Old Testament. For example, you're familiar with these words from Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We often take this as saying God's word will not return empty, meaning it will not return void, to mean that whenever we speak the word of God, it will have some impact in some way. And I'm not going to say that that is a wrong application of that text, but that's not actually what God is saying here. What he's saying is whatever God promises will come to pass. It will bear fruit if he says it will. If we took the time to read the larger context of these verses here in Isaiah 55, we would see that in this part of Isaiah, God has promised salvation to the world, not just to the Jews, but to the earth, to the Gentiles, to a nation they do not know. Earlier in the chapter, God promises them that because of his will, he's going to bring others into the fold. In other words, the Gentiles would come to the Lord just like the Abrahamic promise stated. And he calls upon the whole earth to seek the Lord while he may be found with the assurance that what God has promised will certainly come to pass. Jesus was urgent about his crucifixion and his resurrection because these two profound events were necessary to fulfill the word of God that would bring salvation to the world, the promise of God to redeem the world, the promise that through the Jews, his people, ultimately through him, the earth would know the Lord. And we see this in multiple ways. You're very familiar, I know, with Isaiah 53. God prophesies that one would pour out his soul in death and be numbered with the transgressors and bear the sins of many. Do you know what Jesus tells his disciples before the cross in Luke 22? He says to them in verse 37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He's quoting this text from Isaiah. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Literally, Jesus says here, it is necessary that these scriptures are fulfilled in me, that is through me. For they have been written about me and therefore they have their end in me, their terminus, their fulfillment in me. Jesus went to the cross to fulfill the word of God, not only to fulfill this specific prophecy in Isaiah 53, but every other prophecy in the Old Testament that, that prophesies his death and resurrection. What else does Isaiah 53 say about the one who would come to bring salvation? Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the way humanity is. That's the way we are apart from Christ. And rather than God punishing all of humanity, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Jesus did to save us. But as the prophecy continues, verse 10 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There was a decision within the Trinity that this is how the rescue of mankind would go. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. How can one who was pierced and crushed and wounded unto death see his offspring, prolong his days? There's only one clear answer that eventually became the answer to this big question, Isaiah 53, when Jesus Christ came and died for us. It is only through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It was after this glorious resurrection that Jesus, speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as we just heard from Brother Chuck, when they did not yet realize that Jesus had risen, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary? Was it not binding that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And later in the chapter to the disciples, Jesus says, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Hebrew scriptures have three parts, the law, the prophets, the writings, the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim. And every one of them witnesses to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, everything written about me in all three parts of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. It is binding that they are fulfilled. Then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. I always wonder, how did Peter, the scared denier of Jesus Christ, in about 50 days or a little less than that, actually preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the Psalms? How did he know that all of a sudden? Jesus opens their understanding of the scriptures. And he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And we follow Jesus to Jerusalem and to the cross and to the empty tomb. And as we follow him, we note his urgency because this was the crux of his mission, the death and resurrection for our sins. He was urgent because of his love for us. He was urgent because of the will of his father. And he was urgent to fulfill the scriptures, love, obedience, God's word. All of these reasons were profoundly important to him. And we cannot come after him. We cannot 
try to be his disciples or pretend to be his disciples if these are not profoundly important to us as well? When we come after Jesus, we learn to love others and see their needs. We learn to desire the will of the Father, laying down our own will, sacrificing our own will, exchanging it for his. And we learn to honor and follow the precious written word of God. And we should see that, we should desire to see that will fulfilled or lived out in our own lives. In fact, it is that very resurrection life that Jesus provides for us in our salvation because we are united with him that gives us the desire to love others and to yearn for the will of God to be done and to follow the scriptures, to be his witnesses as he commissions us in this passage. And if you do not have that desire, if if, if that desire is dead within you, it may mean that you do not truly yet know him personally. And if you do not know him, let me just tell you, I and a number of others here this morning would love to share with you today how you can know for certain that you belong to him. It's a wonderful day to come to Christ for salvation and to celebrate his new resurrection life through your own new life with him. But more specifically, for those of us who know Christ, I would like to conclude with these words from Charles Spurgeon. If you ever think your sermon is not going to have enough weight, just use some words from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote these words about the resurrection, and they cause us not only to rejoice in our risen Lord, but they also urge us to a new life of obedience to God's will and his word. Spurgeon said, the doctrine of a risen Savior is exceedingly precious. The resurrection is the cornerstone of the entire building of Christianity. It is the keystone of the arch of our salvation. It would take a volume to set forth all the streams of living water which flow from this one sacred source, the resurrection of our dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But to know that He is risen... And to have fellowship with him as such, communing with the risen Savior by possessing a risen life, seeing him leave the tomb by leaving the tomb of worldliness ourselves, this is even still more precious. The doctrine is the basis of the experience, but as the flower is more lovely than the root, so is the experience of fellowship with a risen Savior more lovely than the doctrine itself. I would have you believe that Christ rose from the dead so as to sing of it, he says, and derive all the consolation which it is possible for you to extract from this well-ascertained and well-witnessed fact. But I beseech you, rest not contented even there. Though you cannot, like the disciples, see him visibly, yet I bid you aspire to see Christ Jesus by the eyes of faith. And though like Mary Magdalene, you may not touch him yet, may you be privileged to converse with him and to know that he is risen, you yourselves being risen in him to newness of life. To know a crucified Savior as having crucified all my sins is a high degree of knowledge. But to know a risen Savior as having justified me and to realize that he has bestowed upon me new life 
having given me to be a new creature through his own newness of life. This is a noble style of experience. Short of it, none ought to rest satisfied. May you both know him and the power of his resurrection. Why should souls who are quickened with Jesus wear the grave clothes of worldliness and unbelief? Rise, for the Lord has risen. Amen.